Western allies attending the Ukraine Recovery Conference in London pledge billions for rebuilding the war-ravaged nation. Even as we come together here in London, committed to supporting Ukraine's buildup, Russia continues to try to burn it down. Growing concerns over the safety of Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. If we imagine that this cooling system is blown up, this would create a very, very, very big problem, not only radi radi radioactive problem, but also ecological and, and Black Sea would just probably die. And later in the program, what's being done to protect some of the most vulnerable populations in Ukraine? Today is Wednesday, June 21st. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. At the Ukraine Recovery Conference in London Wednesday, Ukraine's allies pledged several billion dollars in non-military aid to rebuild its war-ravaged infrastructure, fight corruption, and help pave the country's road to membership in the European Union. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. I believe the European Union has a special responsibility. And the reason is simple. We heard the president Ukrainians tell us that when they imagine their future, they see Europe's flag flying over their cities. And I have no doubt that Ukraine will be part of our union. Delegates from more than 60 countries attended the conference, which is both a fundraising forum and a message to Russia that Ukraine's allies are in it for the long haul. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Even as we come together here in London, Committed to supporting Ukraine's buildup, Russia continues to try to burn it down. So, let's be clear. Russia is causing Ukraine's destruction, and Russia will eventually bear the cost of Ukraine's reconstruction. Emphasizing the vast scale of the task ahead, leaders urged private sector companies to invest and revive an economy battered by almost a year and a half of war. Make no mistake. All of these reforms and recovery efforts depend on Ukraine having the capacity to deter and defend against future attacks by Russia. That's why, even as we invest in Ukraine's immediate and long-term recovery, we also have to build a Ukrainian military that is strong enough to protect Ukraine's sovereignty, its territorial integrity, and its independence. Not just to defend Ukraine's land, but to defend all that Ukrainians are building and will build on that land. The World Bank has estimated the cost of reconstruction at more than $400 billion, a figure rising daily alongside the human toll of Russia's invasion. Meanwhile, Ukraine's environment minister said this week the destruction of the Kohovka hydroelectric dam has caused $1.3 billion worth of damage, warning that mines unearthed by flooding could wash onto other European countries' shores. And it's also raised an already growing risk for the safety of Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest in Europe. 
I asked Anna Chernikova in Kyiv about the rising dangers and growing concerns. So the latest events which are happening uh, around the Parisian nuclear power plant, such as the explosion at Kohovka Dam, for instance, the flood of, of the area. Due to this event, the reservoir with water, which is used for the cooling system of the plant, is no more getting uh, water. But for the moment, Ukrainian officials at the plant, uh, they say that there are no direct risks at this point because it would be enough cooling water to keep the plant at the state it is now. I would remind that this plant has six nuclear uh, reactors. Five are completely shut down. One is working on a very low level. So for now, it's enough water for cooling system. But we should also understand that this is a long-term issue and definitely plan B, C, D should be considered. And the representatives of the International Atomic Energy Agency are keep their eye on the situation at the side. But uh, yesterday, uh, the head of, Ukra- of the Ukrainian intelligence said that Ukrainian intelligence has confirmation that Russian forces additionally mined the cooling system of the plant. Uh, because previously, Ukrainian intelligence confirmed that there are certain areas of the plant which are mined. And after this explosion at Kohovka, Dam here in Ukraine, a lot of people actually believe that Russian forces could also create similar provocation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So, if we imagine that this cooling system is uh, uh, is blown up, this would create a very, very, very big problem, not only radioactive problem, but also ecological and and Black Sea would just probably die. Also, what we've heard yesterday, the President Biden said that the risk of President Putin using tactical nuclears is actually real. Combine this two, you know, news, which were top news yesterday in the evening and today here in Ukraine is discussed uh, and, you know, people are really concerned about that. We should definitely consider uh, the mine of the Parisian nuclear power plant as a tactical nuclear weapon as well. So this is very, very risky, I should say, situation, very disturbing situation. And Ukrainian officials and also within the society, the concern is very high. Ukrainians already went through Chernobyl disaster. And my parents, for instance, who remember Chernobyl happening, the explosion at Chernobyl nuclear power plant, they are extremely, extremely concerned because they know the consequences and they know or they remember how was it then. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Wednesday that progress in Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russian forces was slower than desired, but that Kyiv would not be pressured into speeding it up as its troops advance through dangerous minefields. I spoke with VOA's Heather Murdoch, who is in Ukraine on the outskirts of one of the combat zones. Heather, when we last spoke, you were in the Donbass region. Give us an update on where you've been and what you've been witnessing. We are still in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, and today we went closer to one of what is now about a thousand kilometers of frontline areas in Ukraine. And uh, in this area, we met some medics who were in a what was a store, and it's now a what they call a stabilization point, where they were waiting for soldiers to come back from combat with injuries, where they can triage them and do like basic surgeries, stuff to keep them alive 
before they would be transported to um, military hospitals or, for serious cases, um, large government hospitals further out of the war zone. The medics there said the war here is different than other major operations that they have worked in. They say the fighting is closer and they're seeing more wounds like bullet wounds as opposed to the majority of the wounds in other battles were from artillery. So there would be shrapnel and hits from things falling from the bombs. They also say that they have one advantage in at this time in that they are closer to the hospitals uh, at the for the battle for Kherson, which was one of the major battles. They were uh, more than an hour away from the nearest hospital, so it was very difficult when soldiers got injured to even get them the help they needed in time. There also is, you know, some disadvantages of this fight here in that they were saying that the Russians have occupied a lot of the area near here for more than a year, and so their fortifications are very strong. And civilians in the area told us they believe soldiers are now fighting for the area meter by meter as opposed to kilometer by kilometer, which would be ideal. But the civilians did say that they were relieved because they can hear and sometimes even see the front line moving further away from their towns. And the medics you spoke to, are they getting a lot of injured soldiers? I, I understand there, there are different sorts of injuries, but is it still is it a large number of injured soldiers? And what about civilians? Are they getting in the crossfire at all? Or as you said, the front line seems to be moving further away from them. As far as civilian injuries go, even though the front line is moving farther away, what we find in this area and in other towns all over the Donbass region that are sometimes as far as 20 or kilometers away from any fighting, there's still civilian injuries from bombs that may or may not be trying to get to where they're going. But I mean, just last week, there were three injuries in a town called Liman that is so far away from the war that you can only occasionally hear a bomb. But in this particular area, the fighting is close enough that civilians are getting injured. And there's a significant amount of soldiers getting injured and getting injured significantly. But they didn't tell us any details about this. It's one thing that they're quite particular about is not revealing details like the numbers of injured and dead among the military because they believe this is bad for morale and information that could be useful to their enemy. And you've been also working on a story related to the impacts that the war is having on children and education. Can you give us a bit of a preview on what you've learned? In a lot of these towns, the war has been going on, as you know, for more than a year. And even when the front line moves further away or the towns that were occupied by Russian soldiers become once again controlled by the government of Ukraine, they are not nearly at capacity to rebuild. So what we have found all over the region is the schools themselves destroyed. And even if they're not destroyed, parents wouldn't consider sending their kids to schools because there's still the possibility of bombings at any time. And the kids have largely been going to school online since before or since the time the coronavirus pandemic forced them to close schools for quarantine reasons. So these kids say that their education is kind of up to them. Like they, they can study and some of them really do. But if they don't feel like it, they can turn their camera off and play on their phone. And worse than that, a lot of the kids say they don't really have the resources to be studying properly. For example, during times 
where the war is close or in their town, the internet often doesn't work. And perhaps they can go to a military point to upload and download their assignments. But this is putting themselves in a lot of danger for a homework assignment. And they say, in some ways, it's worth it because this has been going on for so long for them that as, you know, people who are 11 or 12 or start going through their teens, they're losing critical years of education. So they're sometimes willing to put themselves in danger just to do their homework. Where are you headed next? Well, we believe that tomorrow we are going to start working with the military directly embedding in their brigades. So it's actually not entirely up to us where we go. Our goal is to get good first-hand account of what is happening in this counteroffensive that's been going on for about two weeks. There's been, as I understand, achievements by the Ukrainian military and also some by the Russian military, but the movement has been slow. However, the Ukrainian government says they've recently, just recently, taken eight villages that were occupied by Russia, retaken them again, and we are hoping to not only see the military work, but also visit some of the villages that have been retaken by Ukraine in the past two weeks. VOA's Heather Murdoch reporting from eastern Ukraine. China's Ukraine envoy has appealed to other governments to stop sending weapons to the battlefield and to hold peace talks. Associated Press correspondent Karen Shamis has the story. The envoy, Li Hui, gave no indication, however, that his trip to the region made any progress towards a settlement. His appeal came as Washington and its European allies are ramping up supplies of missiles, tanks and other weapons to Ukrainian forces that are trying to take back Russian-occupied territory. In a briefing with reporters, Li also noted that challenges remained for peace talks to take hold. I can tell everyone that judging from the situation now, there are possibly still a lot of difficulties for all parties to sit down for negotiations and achieve outcomes. Chinese leader Xi Jinping's government says it's neutral and wants to serve as a mediator, but has supported Moscow politically. I'm Karen Chamas. You've been listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. The UN says that among 8 million refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine, 90% are women and children. With martial law prohibiting most men from leaving the country, many of Ukraine's women who go abroad have no choice but to take care of their families alone. As part of VOA World Refugee Day coverage, Warsaw reporter Lisa Bakaletz heard from some of the women who've taken refuge in Poland. From the danger of becoming a victim of trafficking or sexual violence to mental health issues and complete frustration, Ukrainian refugee women are facing a long list of perils on their own battlefront away from the trenches. Those things you do automatically at home, here it takes a half day or even days from elementary things like cooking soup because you're in someone else's kitchen to global ones, how to go to a doctor or apply your children to a school. Marina Mazurak is from Ukraine's Dnipropetrovsk region. She and her two children came to Warsaw last March. By chance, she found the foundation Ukrainian House and its women's club online. I saw their event on Facebook, registered and came. There was an informational meeting about the healthcare system, and here I saw confused women in tears, disoriented like me. I also met those who were ready to help. Later, Mazurak became a coordinator of the women's club. She says even after more than a year abroad, many Ukrainian women still need to have these kinds of meetings to reassure them that they are not alone. Although the initial stress has gone, fatigue has built up. 
During the first half of the year, since the war started, we survived because of adrenaline. Then I noticed my clients started to have a lot of psychosomatic disorders. Many had to take tranquilizers or stronger sedatives. Another issue is that of separated families, says Moiseva. Many couples got divorced during this time. And then there is survivor's guilt. I'd say there are 90% who feel it. I feel it in myself. My husband is in Ukraine and my mother is too. And I am here living in safety. As the war drags on, the fear of death intensifies, especially so among women who are the only adults caring for their children in a foreign land. God forbid I get sick. Sometimes I think if something happens to me, nobody would want my daughter. Who will help her? Anna Zhukova is a refugee from the Kharkiv region. She went through seven interviews while looking for a job in Warsaw. Then she met another refugee, Maria Golovata, who launched a small business with her younger sister selling handmade Ukrainian pierogi, dumplings. Maria Golovata used to be a glass painter in Ukraine. Making pierogi, she is happy too. I have time to bring my children to kindergarten and pick them up. Jobs in factories or stores require shifts and schedules that make it challenging to have three children and work at the same time. All women who spoke with VOA for this story said children are their best support and their biggest motivation to keep holding on. As we've been hearing, hundreds of thousands of children have been dangerously affected by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I spoke with Mykola Kuleba, CEO of Kyiv-based nonprofit Save Ukraine, which focuses specifically on the many risks the war poses for its youngest victims. Save Ukraine Rescue Network is evacuating children from combat zone, but after the occupation territories of Ukraine last year, we found that a lot of children uh, have been abducted and we immediately started our rescue missions and we provided seventh rescue mission and returned 120 children uh, who've been abducted and reunited with their family. Just now these children are in our hope and healing centers. We provide recovery program for, for these children uh, and their families. But our main activities is to evacuate families with children from combat zones and after the full scale invasion, we rescued more than 100,000 children and families. And we have a special vehicles uh, for this. It's more than 60 armored cars, vans, ambulances, especially armored buses. And we provide this evacuation every day. And after that, we send them to our centers, Hope and Healing Centers, community centers. But now in, in Washington, D.C., and I've been in Utah, especially to agree about cooperation for launching first children's justice center for children who've been sexually abused, especially on occupied territories. How big of a problem is it during this occupation? Is human trafficking, sexual exploitation of children another whole problem besides the trauma of war itself? It's a huge problem because any vulnerability, what we have now in Ukraine, it, it's a problem. A second problem after vulnerability is the sexual abuse, human trafficking or sexual exploitation. That's why we can find in Ukraine now 
uh, increasing, uh, when this problem increasing, and especially on occupied territories, everybody heard about Bucha, Irpin, about Russian atrocities, what Russia, what Russian soldiers did with the women and children. And just now we have a cases of abused, sexually abused kids. And uh, it's not only from Russian soldiers, but inside the country, because vulnerability, we have cases, more cases, and we have to combat human trafficking too, because millions of Ukrainian children were fleeing the war with their families to different countries. Experts reporting about huge number of uh, human trafficking and sexual exploitation, and we have a hotline sponsored by USAID, and we have more than 300 calls a day from people who want to be evacuated, who know about sexual abuse or they need emergency assistance. And we identify kids and families of women who've been sexually abused and we provide different services for these women and children. What about the children that were forcibly deported to Russia? Are you planning on working to try to get more of them back home as well? Yeah, it's a huge problem because more than one million children stays on occupied territories and children have been deported to Russia. Putin's commissioner, Maria Lvova-Bilova, who received warrant order from ICC, were reporting two months ago that more than 700,000 Ukrainian children were registered after the full-scale invasion. We understand that more of them are accompanied with their relatives or parents, but how many thousands unaccompanied children were deported from occupied territories, nobody knows. We we just know about Yale report, uh, about 6,000 of children in 43 facilities in Russia, and the Ukrainian government reporting about almost 20,000 children who've been identified as the deported children. But I think it is many more kids because we have to tell about tens of thousands who've been deported after first invasion to 2014. It's nine years ago. And how many of them unaccompanied now? How many of them received Russian citizenship? How many of them of that school children who've been in Crimea, on Donbass territories, now young adults and fighting against Ukraine, received Russian citizenship. And nobody knows the real numbers of these children, but we understand that we need support from different countries all over the world to return Ukrainian children to Ukraine. What can you do to make that happen? It sounds like a pretty daunting task. Our win in this war will help us to return these children because now Russia is strong, Russia is fighting, Russia is aggressor and their goal is to depart many more children from Ukraine because their main goal is destroy Ukrainian identity. That's why many people ask me why they need Ukrainian children. It's a very simple answer. Because after brainwash them, russify them, 
these children will lose Ukrainian identity. That's why it's number one. Number two, they have a huge demographic issues and they need more population. That's why they deporting Ukrainian families with children. And number three, they use these children as a militaries in future. And it is thousands of Ukrainian children who been after first invasion now fighting in Russian army against Ukraine after being brainwashed. How has this horrific dam collapse also impacted these already vulnerable children? And is there anything you are doing now to address those concerns? It's a tragedy. It's not only dam collapse, but our rescue teams who've been evacuating these children who've been under the shelling. Our rescue teams have been shelled during evacuation. It's, it's a horrible, horrible crime, what war crime, what Russians doing against humanitarian law. They are killing civilians. And now we are rescuing every day hundreds of people from flooded areas and providing emergency assistance and move them to safer areas. Nobody knows when it will stop. Nikola Kulebra, CEO of Kyiv-based nonprofit organization Save Ukraine. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com and on social media just follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America. Washington, Bam, 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 zip, D.C.